My guest today is Albert Wenger of Union Square Ventures. We started in 2005 when he joined Delicious before selling to Yahoo, after which he joined Union Square Ventures full-time and made big investments in companies like Twitter. Now, today, he's worked on and perfected a book called World After Capital, where he argues that today, the big scarce resource is not capital, it's attention that everyone's fighting for. Now, this is an important thing to think about because one of the big investments Union Square Ventures made was Twitter, which is built around an ad model predicated on keeping our attention, just like Facebook. Union Square Ventures made north of called a billion dollars, according to the Twitter S1, where the company built up north of a 5% stake in that company. So what changed? I asked Albert. I think he gave a good answer there. We also talk about the three pillars that this change has to kind of coalesce around economic freedoms informational freedoms, and psychological freedoms. We talk about those three things related to blockchain. We talk about universal basic income and what that could look like and how consumers can more safely guard their attention to make sure it's being used in a productive manner. We'll jump into it in this long-ranging conversation, but it all started in a quiet German town when Albert entered a coding competition. Let's jump in. Hello, everyone. My guest today is Albert Wagner. At 18 years old, he won a computer science competition at his German high school before proceeding on to Harvard and earning a PhD in information technology from MIT. After that, got into management consulting, hosted data and analytics, and eventually became the president of Delicious before its sale to Yahoo. After that sale, he joined uh, Union Square Ventures, Fred and his early co-founder there, eventually becoming in 2008, I believe, uh, managing director where he invests in software companies around, around three core thesis. More importantly, though, after that, he's solidified a lot of his thinking about the world in a book that he's written called World After Capital, which we'll spend most of today talking about. Albert, you ready to jump in? Ready. All right. What was that science competition? Do you remember what you wrote? <laughs> well, it was, it was a computer science thing, and they, um, you had to solve a lot of problems in round one, and then more difficult problems in round two, and then there was a final round, with, which was an oral exam, and I don't remember any of the details. <laughs> Interesting. I just remember writing a lot of code for it, and it was a lot of fun. Did your parents do anything to kind of turn you on to coding back in the day? I mean, they had to have done something to provoke that. Um, they were the ones who turned me on to it. They were incredibly supportive. So um, I ran across it in our school. Um, we had uh, a sort of a very early um, 6502-based computer there. Uh, and then I had the great luck of, uh, in the small village that I lived in, there was a nearby computer science student who kind of really took an interest in me. And he gave me all of his stuff. And... Um, Collectively, we convinced my parents to first buy me a Texas Instruments uh, 59A programmable calculator, and then subsequently a, an early Apple II, which I still have. It actually sits in my office. Um, it was a great computer to learn. And this is, uh, you joked in your recent TED talk, I mean, this thing takes up, you know, a four-person desk takes up the whole desk surface, basically, right? Yeah, pretty much, yeah. <laughs> we'll, we'll talk more, guys, further along about the deflationary nature of technology, Moore's Law, and how these things have gotten so much smaller over time. But Albert, take us into Harvard. So you there, senior thesis about the impact of computerized trading on stock prices. Uh, most developers hate money. Uh, you, you ran right into it, it sounds like. Well, I wound up studying both economics and computer science, and I didn't really actually kind of fully know why. Um, I think there was something in the back of my mind that sort of suggested that I was going to study economics to learn something about business, maybe. Um, by the way, don't do that. Um, economics has not all that much to say about business. Uh, um, 
but I kind of did it. And then I was looking for a topic that would satisfy both the computer science department and the economics department. Uh, I should uh, hasten to add, in the end, only the economics department signed off on my thesis. <clears throat> I couldn't get <laughs> the two professors to ever really talk to each other. And so in the end, I had to kind of um, pick one. And so for the thesis, I picked economics, even though I did a lot more computer science work than economics work while I was there. But um, it was interesting because, you know, it was, I graduated from college in 1990. And computerized trading was uh, a tiny, tiny fraction. It was in its infancy compared to what it is today. And some of the things I wrote about in this thesis um, actually have since become true um, in terms of what the impact of it has been on volatility. Did you explore? I mean, we, we saw obviously a recent flash crash. Did you explore some of these concepts back then? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it was a very theoretical approach to using sort of a game theoretic model of two types of traders, people who trade with information and people who trade for liquidity. Um, but what that model allowed you to explore was the difference between an open and a closed order book. And today, one of the biggest um, structural issues we have in the market is that even though we're trading often with open order books, <clears throat> many of the orders in these open order books are basically phantom orders. They're orders that can be withdrawn from the market um, at you know, millisecond speeds. And so at no cost to the person who had originally placed that order. And so we actually, in a way, have the worst of both worlds. So um, the reason of an open order book is because it provides real signal about where the market is at and um, that can help to reduce volatility. So in the model that I had, having an open order book reduced volatility relative to having a closed order book. But now we have the, the simulation of an open order book without actually having one because so many of the orders can just evaporate. Um, and so I think uh, uh, there's a lot we still need to do to get that right, um, as it turns out. So you still worry today about potential future flash crashes? Yeah, I, I think in general, um, uh, algorithmic trading is uh, has and will be problematic for, for markets. Yeah, absolutely. Interesting. All right, let's fast forward here to MIT. Give us a tease here. Technology of the organization of companies. Uh, obviously, a lot of organizations today are thinking about technology and how to do remote work. Is this sort I mean, were you touching on these subjects back then? Well, so um, in my thesis, I, I look at... Um, uh, a couple of questions. One is the question of firm size, and that's obviously continued to be a really interesting question as we now see some you know mega corporations in terms of their you know uh, at least their reach, not necessarily the employment. Um, and uh, a second question is around organizational structure, um, where I talk a lot about the sort of emergence of kind of a network model in, within an organization. And then the third is about the flows of information, um, which is sort of what are the patterns of information exchange? Um, will things become more interactive? And it, it certainly, again, you know, I'm, I'm not suggesting I had some crystal ball, but I think directionally some of the things I wrote about uh, in that thesis, which was um, I finished in 1999, I think um, have held up very well. Mm -hmm. Let's now fast forward. So post PhD, I think that was 1999. Is that right? Yeah. Okay, so 2003, uh, Josh Schachter started thinking about Delicious. Uh, did, did you join in 2003 or did you join much, much later, 2005, 2006? Well, no, he, um, he wasn't thinking about Delicious. Joshua had written Delicious. It was a fully up and running service while he was still an employee at Morgan Stanley. Um, it, it was a side project. Mm -hmm. um, and um, 
uh, he had started getting interest from VCs, including from Brad and Fred, uh, Brad Burnham and Fred Wilson, who had started Unisquare Ventures. Uh, and um, so I obviously knew both Brad and Fred very well. And through them, I met with Joshua. Wait, how did you know those guys? How did you know? Because you hadn't... Well, hey. so, so Brad, had, so I had an incubator um, from actually from 99 to 2000, very, very short lived. And Brad was one of the investors and directors. And um, uh, of course, and in New York, everybody knew Fred. Um, mm -hmm. So and Fred knew everybody. So I knew uh, both of them. And in fact, Brad and I tried to raise a fund together um, after the dot-com dot bubble burst, um, and we couldn't get it done. Um, and so he had to bide his time a little bit. I had to bide my time. And then he teamed up with Fred to um, to in 2003 to raise um, USV, the first fund, which got going in 2004. Okay. And so, so I, I was right there at the company formation for Delicious, and then Delicious was acquired nine months after formation by Yahoo. Interesting. And, and I believe uh, the company raised about $1 million on, on, on 3 pre in early 2005. Um, I... I Honestly, I have actually completely forgotten the fundraising history, but that sounds about right. Yeah. 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 I just pull, pulled that from the research. I guess the, the reason I'm asking here, I'm curious why Union Square Ventures back in the day, the, a lot of people compared and they say a lot of delicious features have influenced Reddit. You know, Reddit was founded in 2005. Did you guys at Union Square Ventures, do you have any insight to how Bradenfeld and why they decided to take a bet on delicious instead of Reddit? Um, I, I, I don't, um, but I think, um, I, I, I may have the timeline wrong, but I, don't, I think Delicious definitely, I think, precedes Reddit. So, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yep. Okay, so fast forward. You're president of Delicious from 2005 to 2006. You sell to Yahoo to, I believe your negotiations were with a guy that we're all very familiar with now, correct? Um, well, I, there were a, a number of people involved in the negotiations on the other side, so I'm not sure who... Okay, it wasn't was. just Jeff Weiner. Um, so Jeff was involved in the negotiations, but only, um, so delicious rolled up into Jeff, but the negotiations were led by other people. Mm -hmm. Any, any advice there, things you learned that founders today, when they go enter M and A talks that that's like a takeaway. I mean, I know when you hear Josh talk about the acquisition, he said the fact that Jeff flew out, sat at a table, gave him the, your first real offer. He says it was definitely less than quote 30 million, but it was still the first real offer above like a 500 grand kind of thing. That's why he did the deal. Any big takeaways there for M and A? Oh boy, uh, we could have a whole podcast on that alone. Um, <laughs> you know, I think it's um, um, it, you really want to think about what it is you're trying to accomplish. I, I think that's a good starting point, right? Mm -hmm. um, and I think I would also say a lot has changed since then. So um, one of the things that has really changed uh, dramatically since that time is that um, founder secondaries have become completely customary. Uh, and so I think that there are many alternative paths in which um, Delicious would have raised a, a, another round and where um, secondary would have been a really interesting alternative to, to doing an M&A um, transaction so early in the life of a company. Yeah, I mean, I just think forward to today, if there was a VC, any reputable VC that put a million bucks into a company, you definitely don't want to see them sell nine months later. You want to see them building something large and big against the thesis that they raised the money on. Yes, I think that's spot on. Yep. Okay, so take us past Delicious. Uh, you sell the company, then what? Well, so um, 
I made myself sufficiently unpopular during the negotiations that uh, I didn't have to go along. Um, that wasn't that, that wasn't a, that wasn't a grand plan, but it worked out very well. That's a tactic: avoid uh, the earnout, just be nasty, be tough during the negotiation. So, um, so I started hanging out in the USB offices, and I started making some angel investments. Um, one of those was Etsy, and one of those was Tumblr. And then um, I helped lead as a venture partner at USB. I helped lead. Um, the Series A and Etsy, mm-hmm. and, uh, and joined the Etsy board, uh, and then I became um, uh, a GP in the in the second fund, which was the 2008 fund. And can you help people understand from an economic perspective? People go to VC firms, they see analysts, they see partner, they see you know managing partner, they see you know partner, partner, general partner. What does it actually? <laughs> what does this actually all mean? Right? Do you start getting economics improve at that level, or how does that work? Well. You know, each firm is different, right? I mean, um, there are the economics are divided, you know, um, differently in every in every partnership. Um, but as a first approximation, if you're a venture partner in a firm, you tend to have economics primarily in the deals that, or exclusively in the deals that you lead. Whereas when you're a general partner, you have economics in the entire portfolio. I think that's a good first approximation. Okay. And now while you're going through this process, I believe between 2006 and 2013, you're also co-founding with your wife, a company called Daily Lit. Let's... Uh, yeah. I mean, that really was my wife's project. I mean, I, I, I wrote some of the code for it. That was pretty much it. Um, it was uh, an early uh, uh, serialization of content um, via email, actually, at the time. Um, and uh, that company is still around. So. Mm-hmm. It's nice that you're writing. There's someone that's now a GP at a VC firm, but you're still actively writing code, even if it is if, you, if your co-founder is your wife. I, I, I'm gonna write a. I'm gonna publish a blog post tomorrow that has some fresh code that I've written. Yeah, well, and I want to talk more. I want to talk more about the work uh, that you and your wife are doing with with HudsonUp.org and UBI here in a second. And this starts getting into the book. So, when did you start thinking about World After Capital and the concept behind the book? I, I started thinking around about it uh, around the same time that I started joining Union Square Ventures. It goes that far back. Um, I had come to this sort of realization that uh, there was a very large scale change that was happening and that I, I wanted to dig into it harder and understand it better. And so I started giving a series of talks. Um, and they were also grappling with the same question, which is really the question, like, what is digital technology? What is its nature? And how is it changing the things that we can do as humanity? And how should we think about what we can do as humanity? Um, and um, and then I, I kind of remember walking down um, uh, Market Street in San Francisco, and it kind of clicked. I mean, I've been sort of talking about it, but I had this real moment where it clicked. and. And the thing that clicked was that that one way to think about the large-scale history of humanity is there's a history of binding constraints, and that what technology does is it shifts what the binding constraint is. So this can be very easily summarized for, you know, a long time we were foragers, and the constraint was food. You try by the found enough food, or it's starved, or had to migrate. And then 10,000 years ago, roughly, we invented agriculture, and the constraint shifted from food directly to land to arable land. You either had enough arable land so you could grow a lot of food um, or you didn't. Um, and that was the whole new constraint. And 
with that switch, we made a huge amount of changes in how humanity lives. And then a couple hundred years ago, we had the Enlightenment and we started to do real science and we invented steam and electricity and mining and chemistry and all that stuff. And the constraint shifted again. It shifted from arable land to capital. How much physical capital can you put together? Like how many buildings and factories and machines and cars and roads and so forth can you can you construct? And um, and again, we wanted making tons of changes to how humanity lives. And sort of the, the 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 insight that I had when I was walking down Market Street was like. Digital technology is exactly like those two prior ch- changes. It shifts the binding constraint. And the binding constraint is no longer physical capital, but it is attention. Like, what are humans paying attention to? And once I had that, that key insight, then everything else kind of fell in place around it. And that's, that's really what the book is built around. So we're going to dive into attention here in a second. But first, you know, there's a great book by Carlotta Pardes called The Technical Revolutions of Financial. Basically, she goes into financial capital and production capital and argues that with any new golden age, it's got to be supported by financial capital where a lot of people lose their shirts. But the financial capital, eventually there's a big big decoupling and then production capital sort of takes over. Uh, Help us understand how you think about production capital and financial capital in these cycles. Yeah. So um, Carlotta's book is absolutely a must-read book. Um, And basically what she did is she went through history and she looked at multiple cycles of technology and she found that you get these sort of big financial bubbles that then wind up um, in a lot of deployed physical capital infrastructure on which then new things get deployed, basically. So, um, you know, the dot-com bubble... uh, you know, put a huge amount of fiber into the ground. It led to a huge amount of investment in building out data centers and um, foundational software, investing in databases and um, load balancing and all that stuff. Um, And that made it possible then for a company like Delicious to build an application without spending a lot of money. So when I did my first startup, so... While I was getting my PhD at MIT, I also did a startup. By the way, it's a bad idea to do both your PhD and a startup. Um, <laughs> but I did a startup at the end of 96, beginning of 97. And, and at that time, you were basically out $100,000 just to get onto the internet. I mean, you know, between like actually getting dedicated bandwidth, getting a dedicated server, <laughs> getting a bunch of software licenses that you needed that w- for which there weren't open source. This like Apache had just gotten going. Um, so... Um, yeah, age yourself here. Yeah, no, definitely. Oh, yeah, <laughs> oh, I have no problem with that. Um, but, um, but, 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 if, co- contrast that with today. Today, you can get a hundred thousand dollars in credits to be on the internet. Like, you can get a hundred thousand dollars from AWS or from Google Cloud, and probably also from Microsoft um, Cloud, right? So, so we've we've swung from being negative hundred thousand to being positive hundred thousand. That's a extraordinary enabler of innovation. And that's exactly what we've seen. We're seeing a huge amount of, of that kind of digital innovation as a result. 
So Carlotta would argue that sort of we moved out of the age of oil and automobiles, right, from the Model T plant opening in 18 or 25-ish to basically 1971 when Moore introduced the, obviously, Intel chip. Uh, you started seeing, obviously, Moore's Law come into place. And because of Moore's Law, technology by nature is deflationary. Uh, you just argued and talked about the decoupling. She argues that decoupling was in 2000 with the crash and that now we are seeing an age of production capital in the information age. Do you agree with that? Yeah, I, I, I think that the, this um, fundamental setup is right. Um, the point in my book is, is, is sort of a complementary but different point, which is that um, I think at an even larger scale, uh, zooming out, um, capital itself even is not the thing that's holding us back, right? And, 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 uh, I want to be clear about two things. One is there's huge distributional issues in the world. So um, we can come back to those. I mean, so, you know, the access to capitalists is wildly, you know, has been really pulled apart. And certainly the access to financial capital is we have huge wealth and inequality in the world. Um, but what I mean is physical capital is not the thing that's holding us back um, as humanity. So the best way to think about this is, is to look at China. China literally has stamped entire cities on the ground in the space of like, you know, a couple of years. And during the corona crisis, they built a whole bunch of hospitals, like in the space of a week. I mean, it's like, we're going to build a hospital here and boom, there's a hospital there, right? And so you kind of see that physical capital as in, um, you know, the construction of machines and of buildings and of roads, it's not the thing that's holding us back. Mind you, we have terrible infrastructure problems in the U.S., but it's not because there is a lack of machinery somehow. It's because there's a lack of political will to invest in infrastructure. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and I'm also drawing a very clear distinction in the book between um, three stages, which are, um, which are scarce, sufficient, and abundant. So I, I, by no means I'm making a claim that physical capital is abundant in the world. It is not. Like... It's costly to make machines, and it's costly to deploy them. But I'm making the point that they are sufficient in the sense that they are not the thing holding us back. Scarcity, I define as the thing that's really holding us back. And what's really holding us back is our allocation of attention. So I think my point is related to Kalata's point, but it's a different point. So let, let's go down this attention rabbit hole now. Tell me more about what you mean by that. So first, um, people often say to me, Albert, why don't you just say time? Um, and I say the relation between attention and time is like the relation between velocity and speed. Speed is just a number. Velocity is the speed plus the direction in which you're going. Time is just a number. Like yesterday had 24 hours. The day before that had 24 hours. Um, attention is what you directed your time, the time of your brain at, right? And so... The reason um, I think that is a fundamental scarcity is because you can't go back and change what you paid attention to yesterday. That's number one. Um, and number two, things that are really, really important, um, both to the survival of the species and to the flourishing of the individual, are under-allocated in terms of attention. Um, and the two examples um, that I give about this all the time are, at the individual level, people are not paying nearly enough attention to what is their purpose in life, which is why a lot of people struggle with 
all sorts of um, problems, um, you know, midlife crises. Um, you know, obviously there are um, forms of depression that result from sort of chemical changes in, in, in your brain, but there's also people who just feel rudderless because they don't know why they're here or what they could do or what their life means, right? So that's one example. Uh, and then the other example is collectively, we're not paying nearly enough attention to the climate crisis and how to solve it. Um, there are many other things that we're not paying enough attention to. And obviously with the corona crisis, virus crisis, we just learned that we weren't paying nearly enough attention to preparedness for global pandemics and to fighting, like figuring out ahead of time how to have you know, much better capability of producing vaccines, much better capability of monitoring outbreaks and so forth. So these are just some examples of what we're not paying enough attention to. And I might add, given the time that we're now talking, is we're also not paying enough attention to fundamental structural inequity in society and how to address those, right? Um, and um, instead, what we have the situation is where the market-based system has been so successful at solving a certain class of problems that we have somehow convinced ourselves that it can solve all problems. Um, but that's just not true. And the reason it's not true is because the market-based system, for it to work, it needs prices. And the most important things that we could allocate attention to don't have prices and, more importantly, cannot have prices. There is no system that you could construct by which these things would have prices attached to them. When I think about my own ability to just be quiet and peaceful, uh, it doesn't happen unless my phone is on, do not disturb, and locked in a box in another room, and I can just be present. Uh, part of, I think, the, the issue with this, which I'd like your take on, is there are massive tech companies that are valued in the public stock market around you know, customer ARPUs tied to time in-app and session duration. Are these the wrong metrics? Are they unhealthy? Well, they're certainly unhealthy from a social perspective, right? So what we've done is we have um, companies where the entire business model resolves around reselling your attention. I mean, that's the fundamental nature of advertising. Advertising, going back to, let's say, newspaper advertising, is I have a bunch of your attention. You're like, like paying attention to the newspaper. You turn the page and boom, I throw something in your face, right? Big, like whatever, full page ad. Um, so when that's your fundamental business model, and that's certainly the case for um, uh, companies like Microsoft, uh, sorry, like Facebook and, and, um, and uh, Twitter and uh, um, you know, YouTube, for example, when, when that's my fundamental model, then my incentive is to grab as much of your attention as I can, right? Um, and so how do I do that? I frequently alert you, here's a new piece of content you might find interesting. Um, once you're in there, I'm like, and here's another piece of content. I need another piece. And of course, I'm much more likely to design my algorithms in a way where the pieces of content that they surface are engaging You know, by some metric. That metric usually is you actually go watch the video. Well, it's a lot easier to get that when I give you some like you know cheap emotional hook as opposed to when I say, and here's a video about you know understanding complex numbers. And most people are like, hey, well, that's effort. I don't want to do that. Like, give me some other cat video or give me some other, you know, un, like unhinged rant, you know. Um, that's like what your brain like just sort of gives that quick dopamine hit to your brain, right? 
so yeah, I think we have fundamentally um, created a situation where we're using this new set of technological capabilities, digital technology, and instead of freeing up human attention, we're sucking it down a rabbit hole. Mm-hmm. Now, Albert, I could imagine someone that knows USV's history hearing this, and maybe they heard you at upfront in February say there are too many PhDs focused on advertising and clicks. But on the same hand, they'll go, wait a second. They were the first money in Twitter. They built a 5% stake, which basically turned into hundreds of millions, if not north of a billion dollars. How can he condemn something that made the firm very, very wealthy? Uh, well, um, a couple things. One is um, uh, you can learn, right? I mean, I think when we invested in Twitter, we certainly didn't have the same degree of understanding of just how severe this attention allocation problem would become. That's number one. Number two, when we invested in Twitter, Twitter didn't have um, their own clients. Twitter was a network of third-party clients, um, and it was accessible via text also. A lot of tweeting happened simple via texting, and you also got alerts of other people's tweets via text. Um, and so uh, much of the kind of... Um, trajectory of Twitter um, evolved over time. And I think today, if you look at the investments we've made in the last few years, um, the vast bulk of those uh, revolves around subscription businesses where we think the incentives between the company and the end user are actually aligned, right? So if you are a subscriber to Skillshare, for example, um, Skillshare doesn't want to present third-party ads to you. um, And Skillshare wants to make sure that they produce awesome content so that you're happy as a subscriber. Um, and subscription model has another incredible advantage, which means your marginal consumption is in text. So, um, you know, if you want to watch another Skillshare class, great. Um, just go ahead. You know, you don't need to pay more. Uh, and so a lot of our portfolio has transitioned to this model as we've come to understand the problems with the other model. Mm-hmm. So let's use Twitter as an example to jump into your three freedoms that you believe we need to fight for in the book, which are economic, informational, and psychological. One of the things Jack put out there, and I want, gosh, I want your opinion on this, Jack Dorsey, he said, you know, if I could figure out a way to give power back to Twitter users via the blockchain, every time you submitted a tweet, the more engagement it got, the more, you know, uh, educational it was, the more sort of Twitter coin you earn, the more utility value you got. Um, sounds great in theory. But all those people that invested in Twitter in the public stock market right now, you could imagine the stock price would deteriorate very quickly because that basically erodes your ability to drive ads. How, how do we see kind of, how do you see information freedom happening over the next decade? Yeah, so I basically think that all these systems need to become programmable. Um, they all need to have APIs. Uh, and um, uh, in a way, that's uh, uh, going slightly backwards because, as I said before, at one point, Twitter had APIs and anybody could build a Twitter client. Um, so I believe that anything you can do in an app, you need to be able to do programmatically. Anything I can do in the Twitter app, I need to be able to do through a program. Anything I can do in the Facebook app, I need to be able to do through a program. Now, obviously, that would allow me to create clients that strip out all the advertising. And so I think companies will need to charge for the APIs. And that also needs to be regulated so that they can't make the API access prohibitively expensive. And that's actually pretty easy, I think, to regulate. You just say, look, you know, your API um, needs to be related to what you're making of your free users. 
mm-hmm. if you're monetizing via advertising. So you can't mm-hmm. like make more money on the, the paid users than you're making on the, on the advertising users. So I, I think these are all, all things that can be handled um, through regulation. Um, and there's sort of two regulatory paths forward. One is to mandate these APIs. And in fact, there is there's a draft bill in the U.S. It hasn't made much progress, but but Senator Warner has put forth a bill that um, captures most many of these ideas. Um, there is actual legislation in place in the EU for bank accounts. So your bank account needs to ship with an API. And that has already shifted the power balance between banks and their customers substantially. And similarly here, this would shift the power balance substantially. Um, but it has to be a regulatory act because, as you rightly point out, um, that act is going to potentially destroy some of the market value of these companies. And so the companies aren't going to do this by themselves. So, so just explain, let's keep going down the Twitter path for a second. If Twitter remakes itself uh, and, it, and, it, and it provides a sort of end user API, you argue in, in, at your blog on continuous.com, maybe give some section 230 protections. Co- continuations. Sorry, continuations.com. It's .com, not .org, right? .com, yes. Yeah, continuations.com. Yeah. But you argue for some Section 230 protections for companies that you know adopt this quickly. Yeah. So how? Do, how let's say you're you're giving an ear on a Twitter trading call. You know, uh, call it ten years from now. You believe that they'll be making if they go this path, they will be making money via charging via kind of like Twilio. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. And I think there's a an interesting sort of you know um, historical analog here, um, which is the phone system, right? So um, at one point, just building a telephone system in the in, when it was the circuit switched era was you know very difficult. It required a lot of techni- technological resources, um, had huge network effects. Right, we all want to be on the same phone system. Um, uh, but eventually, we went from circuit switched to packet switched, and we you know today are in a way very happy that um, the um, phone company isn't the one providing all of our innovations um, on top of that network. Instead, you know, it's this place where we can have all these other innovations come to us. And I just think um, similarly, Twitter and Facebook turn out to be enormous platforms for innovation. A lot of people have their identity established there in one form or another. Um, a lot of um, the graphs are very powerful. There's a huge amount of um, knowledge that already resides there about a variety of topics. So I think these could be very powerful engines on top of which to build. Um, but I think, uh, and, and they're not going to go away, just like existing telco companies still have massive businesses. right? Mm-hmm. So, um, so I think there are historic models. I mean, all historic analogies have some flaws, but, but, but they can at least inform how we think about these. Before we move away from informational freedoms, there's some other things you talk about, like rolling back intellectual property rights. And you talk specifically about the patent system right now, its pros, its cons, and also the X prize system and how you can incentivize people with a big prize. My question to you is if you move to a pure prize model, doesn't the person giving out, let's just say it's a lump sum of cash for whoever gets to the moon gets $10 million for, don't they actually then set the agenda and couldn't they just direct our attention to other non-productive things? Well, so uh, so just to maybe bring bring everybody along who's listening, you know, uh, the, the big justification provided for the copyright system and the patent system generally is that it needs to be there so to foster um, content creation and innovation. Um, and um, I make the point that we have many other models for um, incentivizing uh, that. And the area that I always like to point people to is math because you can't um, patent math. Um, and... Um, uh, Math researchers generally are not well paid unless they sort of switch over and go work on the finance side. Um, but math has two things going for it. It has a very good reputation system, 
and it has a um, price system where there's some key prices. Um, and the combination of the two, reputation plus prices, plus lots of people having an intrinsic motivation to want to work on math because it's very cool. They find it cool. That combination of those three factors, intrinsic motivation plus reputation plus price, is a proven extraordinarily powerful. And the amount of progress that's been made in math is mind-blowing. And I think we can use that same system in many other areas. Um, I don't think we need to rely on just private prices. I think some of the most famous prices in history were public prices. Can you give me an example of that? Well, the, the, there's a wonderful book um, by Dana Sobel called uh, Longitude, and it's about the Longitude Prize, um, which the British uh, Crown granted um, for keeping um, proper time at sea so that you could determine not just latitude, which you can easily get from the sun, but longitude, which was a lot harder to get. Interesting. So if you had $10 million and you were giving a prize right now and you wanted to word the thesis of the prize so that it directly helped us solve climate change issues, what, what is maybe something you know analogous to like the, the longitudinal prize back in the day? Yeah, um, I, to me, that's a, that's a fairly easy one. I think um, I would uh, give a prize for um, the most uh, efficient, and this would be precisely defined, um, uh, biochar production. So um, from net new biomass. Interesting. Very interesting. Okay, anything else you want to touch on on information freedoms before we move to economics? No, that's great. Okay, the economic one is what I'm most excited about. Then we'll wrap up with psychological because I think psychological is the toughest. But economic freedom, to me, this is what's fascinating. Politicians, every state of the union, you almost always start off with job growth and GDP growth. And there's inflation targets. But when you have Moore's Law and you know that tech is deflationary, you're essentially fighting the deflationary nature of tech with quantitative easing to hit an inflation, a 2% inflation target. Um, is GDP the right thing for us to be measuring? Uh, it was always a bad measure, um, but for a long time, it was sort of the best measure that we had. It was a bad measure historically because it doesn't measure negative externalities. So if I, you know, um, uh, basically if I sell cigarettes uh, and cause cancer, um, the cigarettes come positive in the GDP and then your cancer treatment also comes positive in the GDP. So the negative externalities were always a problem. Now we have massive positive externalities and those are also not counted. So when I make a lot of knowledge available for free um, and people stop selling Encyclopedia Britannica or stop selling certain types of books, but everybody can now read it for free, I'm kind of shrinking GDP because it measures the production side and not the consumption side. The, the, what economists call consumer surplus, meaning the benefit I get from uh, now being able to go on Wikipedia isn't captured anywhere there. So um, I, I very much think that we need to move away from sort of praying at the altar of GDP. It's just become a, a kind of a measure that is is completely outdated now that so much of what we can do with digital technology is explicitly um, about making things either free or free at the margin um, and creating massive amounts of consumer surplus. Uh, it's not that easy to come up with good measures, to be clear, as to what to substitute. But I do think that um, uh, measuring things like um, uh, people's basic um, life satisfaction, um, continuing to measure um, population health. And by the way, on some of these, we're, we're taking major steps back. So, you know, like life expectancy for certain parts of the population in the U.S. has been going backwards. Um, and um, so I think some of those measures need to really move to the foreground. And then we also really need to move to the foreground, direct measures of uh, the greenhouse gases. It's, 
the single biggest thing we need to not only measure but also work on because all the stuff we've just you and I've just talked about um, is not going to mean a thing um, if we don't get on top of the climate crisis. Mm-hmm. Yep. How do you? Uh, one of the nice things about GDP is everyone knows how there's four components that make it up. You add them together, it spits out a number. You can plot it over time. It's simple, easy to communicate and understand. How do you make these metrics like life satisfaction and population health? How do you make that simple for masses to understand? Well, I mean. Th- one of these is life expectancy, right? I mean, I think you could just sort of do life expectancy at birth and then life expectancy at age, whatever, 40 or 50, you know? So I think uh, life expectancy is a, is a, is, is a, is a really good start. Um, and you can do parts per million of carbon. That's be a pretty good start too. <laughs> okay. There we go. Those are some good ones. Let's get into the universal basic income or basic, basic guarantee. There's a lot of names that people give uh, to, you know, checks to Americans. Um, the first question I've got is a, is a political one, but it shouldn't, hopefully it's not a nasty question. I don't think it is, but you have a lot of folks on the left, Democrats like Elizabeth Warren fighting for minimum wages, which I could never understand because that just further incentivizes companies to replace the human workers because the opportunity cost is higher. Is minimum wage, should Democrats be spending any time trying to fight for a minimum wage or should they fight for UBI instead? Well, I, I don't, it doesn't matter whether you're a Democrat or a Republican, you should fight for UBI instead of fighting for minimum wage. Um, I, I, just, I just think um, that we want more automation. It's, it is crucial to humanity's um, progress to have more automation. The reason you and I can have this conversation on all this amazing technology right now is because we're not out there working in the fields. Uh, and the reason we're not working out there in the fields is because we have brought a huge amount of automation to bear on agriculture. Um, if you go back to, let's say, 1780, uh, about 80% of American population was working in agriculture to support 20% that were doing other things. Um, today, that's sub 5%. Um, and um, I believe... Um, through UBI, we can get to a place where today 80% of the American population, you know, is engaged in some form or another in, the, in this job loop, um, uh, either directly or, or supporting somebody else who's in the job loop. Um, and um, uh, it sucks up economic activity, meaning priced activity, sucks up 80 plus percent of our attention. And I think if we automate properly, we can get into a knowledge age where that shrinks down to whatever, 20% and 80 plus percent or so is non-economic activity. So what do I mean by non-economic activity? Well, it's, you know, taking care of your children, taking care of friends, taking care of the environment, um, making music, um, pursuing science. I mean, these are all non-economic activities. And uh, I think we need to create space for them. And the minimum wage doesn't do any of those things. Mm-hmm. So if you let uh, and encourage automation, because we always want productivity gains for the reasons you just mentioned, could you see a future where, and again, a critical thing here is we've got to get rid of a government and generally world governments, world banks focused on a 2% inflation target, right? So so assume we take care of that, but could you foresee a, a lifestyle where folks are only working one day a week to supplement their UBI and use six days, seven days a week to do other things. Oh, absolutely. And, and I can also see people continuing to work seven days a week. I mean, it's just the beauty of UBI is it says nothing about how much money you can or want to earn on top of that. Absolutely nothing. And some people may choose to want to earn a lot and other people may choose to earn nothing on top of it. Um, coming back to the central banks for a moment, I actually am not anti-central bank. Um, 
I just think that um, we need to move to uh, what's called whole reserve banking um, from fractional reserve banking. And so when the central banks create money, I'm totally fine with the central banks creating money. I'm totally fine with 2% inflation. It's just we can't be creating the money and giving it to banks. We have to create the money and give it to people. It's still going to enter the economy. It's just going to enter at a different spot. Um, and the way I, I, I tend to think about this is like, you know, I'm now um, thankfully very well off. I can easily get a loan, not just for a second home, I could get a home for a loan for a third home. I mean, um, at a time when many other people can't afford a home at all, right? And so um, why is that? It's because the place money gets created in the economy is with the commercial banks. The, the, the central bank presses a button and the commercial banks have more money. And then they are allocating where that money goes. Whereas if the and you said it earlier, funny enough, you literally used the word, well, you know, during the crisis now, we're sending checks to everybody. That's literally what we're doing. We're sending checks to everybody because we're not set up to push a similar button and have the Fed create money in all individuals' accounts. And that's all it would take. Um, all it would take to get to a UBI world is to just switch to that system where the way money gets created is it gets created in each of everybody's accounts, and then it enters the economy there. And then it still finds its way to banks. I mean, you know, and it's, banks will still make loans and so forth. It's just that when they want to make the loan, they need to find the money first and they can make the loan. They can't go to the central bank and say, give me the money so I can make the loan. Yep. There's a lot of people that look at the CARE Act passed, obviously, to help sustain the economy through this crisis and said, you know what, what you really have here is the United Airlines CEO taking basically a grant. It's not like a way where the banks paid back the money with interest. It's basically free money or very, very, very small interest rates. Uh, and you essentially have the government bailing this company out. You have capitalism at the top. And then, you know, well, we'll throw $300 billion to some UBI checks. So you have some, but you still have basically socialism at the bottom, right? Where people just, they, got, they go out of business. Or sorry, it's backwards. You have socialism at the top, yeah, capitalism at the bottom. bottom. Yeah. yeah, yeah, I had that backwards. Yeah. Yeah. But, but do, do you agree with that? No, I think, I think that's exactly right. I mean, and, and, you know, I think, you know, even when you go back to the financial crisis, you know, we, we gave the banks a whole bunch of money and then like it literally didn't take more than a year for the bankers to pay themselves like higher bonuses than the year before. And you go, wait a second, you guys just basically went bankrupt if we hadn't bailed you out and you're paying yourself these massive bonuses to get like something is wrong here. Yeah. So I assume <laughs> you, also, you... the other thing you look at is like we had banks that were too big to fail and now we have banks that are even bigger. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, no, I assume because of all this, you are you are not a proponent of the U.S. government getting into the ETF world. No, absolutely not. Yeah, absolutely not. Why do you believe they're? I mean, you can look at Japan. Why do you believe that they're doing this? Why do they feel like? Well, it's a good I, idea? I I think it's because, um, and I write about this in the book. It's because we've come to see the world. That's why the book is called World After Capital. It's through this lens of capital, like capital is going to solve all problems, and we've come to think of companies as being the sort of allocators and funds, as being the allocators and banks, as being the allocators of financial capital, which is sort of this intermediate stage to get to physical capital is what, what we care about. But because we see it through this lens, um, and because at the same time, we also have this lens of, God, everybody has to have a job, you know, like, like your paid job is like your purpose in life. And if people don't have a job, they're going to do bad things, and they're going to be unhappy, and all these things that we've convinced ourselves of, it's because of that that we just have this one mental model of how to address the problem, which is just give more money to the banks, give more money to the funds, give more money to the companies. Instead of just saying, 
wait a second, what if we gave that money to the people and let them do what they actually want to do with the money? Yep. And I just think we have this sort of incredibly negative image where we go, oh, you know, that's just bad. I mean, people are going to spend it on drugs and they're going to laze around and they're going to, you know, do no, be no good. And there is literally no evidence to support that. Um, all the evidence from all the basic income trials that have ever been run are that people are like, wow, I can take better care of myself. I can invest in education. I can take better care of my family. Um, of my friends. Um, so all the evidence points that people, when given money, actually in communities, actually know what to do with this money. Mm -hmm. um, yes, there'll always be examples where it doesn't work. But the overwhelming evidence is that people are actually going to figure out how to solve their problems when they yep. have the resources to do so. Yep. So, so when you talk about, yeah, everyone goes, well, how do you pay for it? You know, the price tag people will put out about $3 trillion. You argue in your book net, it's actually closer to 2.3. I assume what you're doing there is replacing some of the welfare programs. Um, is that accurate? I'm, 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 well, there's a couple of things. There's, there's welfare programs, but more importantly, it's taxes, right? So the way the U.S. income tax system works today is just the whole thing is just, it's all screwed up in many ways. So if you are on welfare programs today, you have zero work incentive because you start working, you lose all your welfare, but you only make a little bit of money. So you, the, the, the taxes that you effectively face, people who are on welfare today often face tax rates that are above 100%. So like, it has completely nuked all work incentive for that. So that's crazy. Then the next thing that's crazy is that there's a whole bunch of people who are not paying any federal income tax. I mean, Mitt Romney famously you know, tanked his own campaign when he, you know, called them out and, 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 and berated them. But it's the tax code. The tax code says if you make below a certain amount of money, you don't owe any federal income taxes. So like, if you had a UBI system, the way to do it is now you just start like taxing dollar one. Like You could have a flat tax rate. Every dollar is taxed the same way. By the way, independent where it comes from, I would tax every dollar. You get a dollar, whether it's from interest rate, capital gains, work, whatever. Just You get a dollar, you pay taxes. Same rate of taxes. Eliminate all the loopholes. That reduces the net amount of money very, very substantially, because now as people, you know, people are still going to want to earn, as you and I talked about, many people are going to want to earn an income above the basic income. I would, based on all the studies that have been done, the vast majority of all people are going to want to earn an income and they will start paying taxes and that reduces the amount of money needed. And Albert, why are you a proponent of the tax essentially on the money earned or given versus what over 100 countries around the world do, which is tax the consumption via VAT tax? And by the way, this is going to hit these companies that are building monopolies like Amazon. Yeah, I, I'm not a it, either or. I, I don't think that you know it needs to be just one or just the other. Um, I mean, many parts in the US have a sales tax. The sales tax isn't that different from a VAT. Um, I think also figuring out what exactly value added is, is tricky. So, um, but, but I do think one of the reasons to have an income tax, um, frankly, is because I think there is a lot of income that you know, is generated without labor. And so I would tax that. And then it becomes difficult if you try to do what we're currently trying to do, which is distinguish between many types of income, which I yep. think is a mistake. Okay, let's jump into the last, last pillar here, psychological freedom. What's it mean? Psychological freedom is just um, understanding that our brains evolved um, over millions of years in an environment where when you saw a cat, there was an actual cat. And um, now I can show you an infinity of cat pictures, right? And um, each time your brain sees a cat, I'm like, oh, that's a cat. Um, and so, um, so much of our brain circuitry is um, 
susceptible to um, cheap prompts, um, uh, whether it's cat pictures or whether it's some highly emotional um, video or even the emotional uh, headline. And um, our brain also has the capability of rational thought and it rational thought and language, um, which just makes us unique. I mean, you know, um, dogs are amazing, uh, but they don't write books and whales are incredible, but they don't, you know, write books. Um, so that part of the ability to write a book, to read a book and so forth, that part of our brain uh, is a part that requires a certain amount of effort. And so psychological freedom is all about living in a world where you can constantly be bombarded with information that all it tries to do is hijack your attention, hijack your emotions, make, put you in some kind of emotional state um, of that will then keep, as you pointed out, will keep you engaged with some system, whether that's YouTube or Facebook or whatnot. Um, it, psychological freedom is what is it that you can do as an individual to not be so susceptible to that? Um, and, you know, it's become a cliche word, but I do think mindfulness is sort of the, the single um, key to this, which is have some kind of mindfulness practice for yourself. And what that is for any one person I, I don't want to, you know, prescribe because different things work for different people. Like I've tried meditation for years, couldn't make it work. I now do very simple breathing exercises. I do them every morning, every evening. They've transformed my life. So I think there are other tricks. My phone is always on D&D. Um, the only thing that makes my phone vibrate is a text or call from one of my immediate family members. That's it. Mm -hmm. um, uh, I've, I also have turned my phone off so that visual notifications so the screen stays dark um i, I just think that, that you know there there are small hacks like that but the, the big hack is the sort of mindfulness hack mm -hmm. how do you convince i mean listen the, the, we all have cognitive bias uh and we like seeing more of what we agree with because it makes our feel but it makes us feel better about ourselves and twitter and facebook are brilliant at creating echo chambers that give us this exact dopamine hit i mean how do you convince a population to give up something that feels good well, this is a long-term process. I mean, everything that we're talking about here, when people ask me, what do I think, how long it will take? I think it's a multi-generational um, project, right? Just like it took us multiple generations and unfortunately two world wars to get out of the agrarian age into the industrial age. I think this is going to take a while. But a starting point here is it's got to be part of what every kid learns as a kid. So, you know, I went through a lot of school. I went through... 13 years of school in Germany, plus I spent a year in high school. Then I did four years, of, well, I did three years of college. And then I did three years of graduate school. That's a lot of school. <laughs> all of that had all sorts of requirements, you know, core requirements, distribution requirements, you know, in various subjects. Do you think at any one point in time there was a required class on a owner's manual for your brain? I'm going to guess no. No, absolutely yeah. not. I mean, it's crazy, like, you know, mandatory history or physical education or whatnot. But like the single most important thing about us is our brain and you don't learn how to properly use it. Yep. Interesting. All right. I want to wrap up. We have three or four minutes left here on blockchain. Uh, this is a much longer conversation, but in 2013, you wrote an article. I would, I'd call you one of the early ones, by the way, you talked about colored coins and many would argue that Ripple ended up winning that war. Obviously, OpenCoin controlled Ripple. OpenCoin raised money from early angel investors to develop their RTXP Ripple protocol. But ultimately that wealth flowed back, right? To Garlinghouse and other Ripple executives, right? So it's kind of 
anti-decentralized, which is what we thought it was. My question to you is, in a world where you have decentralized applications, uh, where consumers own and contribute utility to a network system and they get value because of that, how does the initial funding occur that incentivizes engineers to write the thing in the first place? Well, I, I think that um, there were obviously a whole bunch of scammy ICOs, but in principle, the idea that you could um, fund um, a protocol, um, you know, we have many incredibly important protocols in the world, like HTTP, for example, uh, is an important protocol. The, the idea that in principle, you could fund a, the development of a protocol through um, selling um, some of its currency um, that is then integral to the running, to the integral to the operation of the protocol, uh, I think is a really fascinating idea. And I think it will be here to stay with us. Um, but I also think that the venture model um, and some hybrid between the two is here to stay. So I think some model where there's some initial capital, so you get to a certain point and then you might um, sell tokens once you're launched. Um, once the tokens are already trading and you still have a treasury out of which to sell. So I believe we're very much in the early stages of exploring the whole space of what's possible here. But incentivized protocol innovation and then incentivized protocols, to me, that is here to stay for sure. Folks, Albert Wegner, arguing that we first had a scarcity of food and moved to scarcity of land, then capital. Today, the issue is scarcity of attention. He talks about this in his book, World After Capital, and basically organized it amongst three pillars, economic freedom, psychological freedom, and information freedom. Now, obviously, partner at US uh, Ventures as he's uh, looking at uh, getting into more of these companies. Albert, any companies you want to point out that you think are tackling some of these things nicely? Do you want to touch on your thesis real quick, the 3.0? Um, yeah, the current thesis is that we invest in uh, companies and uh, projects that broaden access to knowledge, um, capital, and well-being. And um, uh, I think you know that's really the thrust of digital technologies. We can make access to those things broadly available for every human being. All right, Albert Wagner, Union Square Ventures. Albert, thank you. Great. These CEOs rarely give these kinds of interviews. I hit them hard, I get the data, and I want to do it more. So if you want to get more of this stuff, make sure you subscribe up here. And then additionally, go check out one of my other CEO interviews right now.